Hi, everyone. Today, we're continuing in a series called Reconnection. And so far in this series, some of the big ideas have been really rooted in the fact that as we think about reconnecting, whether it be to God or to um, church or to any of the number of things we're reconnecting now, in a lot of ways, that connection is already there. The first week, we, we talked about how this connection with God that's already there and how God has made us for connections with God, with others, um, with creation. And so the challenge for us, for us is to see God's solidarity with us and believe God's love for us. Last week, we talked about reconnecting with church. The church is God's plan for embodying this connecting work. But the church fails just as often as it succeeds. And this can make wanting to connect with church difficult or even dangerous at times for people. And so we talked about how the work in that is admitting that it's hard and believing that it's necessary to be and just kind of being who we are in church in an open-handed and generous way. And last week's challenge that we finished off on is if you're connected here, seek out connections beyond our church. Look for a bigger community and how you can serve it. This week, we're going to kind of talk about where we go from there. If we accept God's loving connection to us and choose to re remain connected to the body of the church and the local community that we've been called to be a part of, there's still a lot of tough people work in that. Um, and so how do we actually pursue and maintain healthy connections with one another? What good do these connections actually do? And kind of why does this all, why does this all really matter? And so in thinking about this, you know, what better text to explore some of these topics than um, in the book of Ruth? In fact, Kenny and I, um, when we were talking about these series, we were kind of trying to avoid Ruth because Kenny can be a little sensitive to like, we have a woman preaching. We don't want to have her do like the woman story. <laughs> like that's kind of weird. We don't want to like do that. Um, and at the end of the day, we couldn't avoid it. We couldn't stay away from it because it was the, kind of the right place for us to teach where we're heading in this, right? And so just an overview of Ruth and her context. Um, in the days when the judges ruled, there was famine. And so there's a man named Elimelech and he moved from Bethlehem to Moab with his wife, Naomi, and her two sons. Um, he then dies. And so it's just Naomi and her sons. Um, both sons eventually end up getting married to Moabite women. And um, after about 10 years, both of her sons also die. So Naomi is left um, really in a, in a very difficult and sad and tragic place. And so Naomi's heard that God has provided food for her people in Bethlehem. And so she's preparing to, to go back, to go back home to where she'd come from originally. Um, as she's preparing, she still has these two daughter-in-laws with her whose husbands have, are, are now also dead. And so Ruth, or sorry, Naomi tells her daughter-in-laws, you should go home, go back to your mother's, and may God continue to show your, you kindness just as you've shown me kindness and your late husband kindness. And may God bless you with another husband. Um, both of these women kind of say like, no, you know, we're going to stay with you. They clearly have a very close and special relationship. Um, and Naomi's just not having it. She's saying, this is kind of ridiculous. This is, you know, you still have a lot of life ahead of you. you have, I'm in a kind of bad spot here. I can't have any more kids. It's too late for me to remarry. Um, but not for you. You still have, go home, start over, kind of start fresh. Um, she, it's very clear that Naomi has understood everything that's happened to her with the deaths and the lack of children born from these marriages and these things that she's seeing as God has turned away from her. 
So quite reasonably, she urges her daughter-in-laws to look out for themselves, go home, start over. Everyone's weeping. Um, there's clearly a lot of closeness and intimacy in these relationships. And so eventually with sadness, one of these um, daughter-in-laws, Orpha, goes, goes, she does, goes back home and does so. And so Naomi urges Ruth to do the same. But Ruth insists that she's committed to Naomi. And so with kindness and commitment and humility, Ruth becomes a part of a redemptive story for Naomi and also for her entire family and legacy. Before we dive into all of that, I do want to take a second to sort of ground us in the series we're in and how it connects to this teaching, right? I don't think any of us are confused as to why reconnection is a thing on people's mind after these past few years. Um, and so exploring it from a lens of how we are already connected to God and those around us, um, whether or not we're even acknowledging those connections or doing anything with them, we are already connected. And so I don't know if a single person who hasn't felt some form of disconnection to things that have formerly felt really grounding in the past few years, whether that's family or church, um, work as we know it, all those like kind of rhythms and patterns and busy things that we fill our days with and fill our time with um, have been interrupted. Um, in some ways, this has been really hard with a lot of loss. And in some ways, it has been really nice, too. And that's kind of complicated, right? Like, there's some ways in which cutting back from all the busyness and the commitments and the, this chaos, maybe a break from someone who's been a really tough relationship or, or just that chaos has been good and nice and healthy. Um, some of the things that we gave up back then are not coming back, and some of that's okay. I don't know anyone who really misses handshakes. Like, can we stop doing that now, please? Right? Like, this, this, that can go. And so this reevaluation of these habits and, and norms and patterns is good and healthy work um, to look honestly, to cut back at things that need to go, and just kind of stare at that existential abyss for a bit and figure out kind of where we need to go from here, right? I know for myself, the temptation from there is to respond to this realization that life's too busy and chaotic by kind of trying to make things a little bit too small, however. Just, I'm gonna care about me and my little group of people that I really like right here and just kind of leave it at that. And the problem with this is no matter how much I may wish or pretend to be able to isolate in this way, it just isn't true. I'm still in an interconnected world and city, and church, and family. And I can't actually disconnect from these pieces. I can just sort of pretend I'm not connected to them. And so all this to say, I believe that all of us have connections of some form that could use some tending, probably, in this time. And I can't really tell you which, what that might be for you. Um, we're obviously in a very different context from Ruth, so I think it's probably not going to be the case that the, the next step is like ditching your homeland and your family and moving in with your in-laws and like going for it. Could, like it could be, but it's probably not. Um, but it is worth reflecting on where we need to lean into strengthening those connections um, and which one of those relationships we need to focus on. Um, so back to Ruth. Let's pick up where Naomi's trying to talk to Ruth into going back to her family. So... Other daughter-in-law's gone home after much convincing. No one's faulting her for it. It was a wise choice on many accounts. And um, Naomi says, look, 
your sister-in-law's gone, just go with her. And so in Ruth 1, 16 through 18, Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. This is a very serious commitment that Ruth's making here. Very serious. She sees Naomi and, and loves her, truly loves her, and pledges herself to Naomi in a way that could be called unwise on many accounts. Um, this commitment kind of transcends Ruth's own racial origin, her national religion. Um, and she's choosing to stay with Naomi even when this likely goes against her own best interests. You don't just do that for someone if you don't really love and care about them, like truly love and care about them. Um, this like love and affection and empathy and this commitment is something that's built over time. And for these two particular women, it's built you know, over a decade or more of time in close relationship with one another. Ruth clearly genuinely loves Naomi and their history matters. We care for people that we love. The people that we show care to are people that we love. And it is much harder to love people that we don't know. This is something I found to be true over and over again about myself and probably many other people too. I like care about the people that I know, actually know in my life. And it's incredibly difficult for me personally to care about people that I don't know in a meaningful way. I could read a story about like a really sad story, beautifully written in the Capitol about a woman whose husband has died and left her widow and then her two sons have died. And I'm not going to do anything about that. I might feel sad for a moment, but I'm not gonna care for her in any way that would actually make any difference for her or for me. I can hear statistics or sound bites or sad stories and we, we get plenty of them in, in our scrolling. Um, and we may really care to some degree, you're not like robots are hardened to these things. Um, we can care about how people are hurting. But we love people that we actually know. And when we love people, it's a lot easier for their people to become our people, for their heartbreak to move my own our heart, for their worries and their challenges to move me towards them and engagement rather than shaking my head at a sad story and scrolling on to the next one. One of the connections that I'm personally working on in my life right now in reconnecting is with my city and my neighborhood is one of the connections that I know in particular I, I have some growing and tending to do. Um, I don't have kids and I have a lot of friends with kids and there's a couple of close, close by neighborhood schools um, to me as with many of us, right? And I don't spend a lot of time thinking about them and their problems particularly, but I have a friend who's parenting right now, working and trying to figure out how this new elementary school schedule is going to affect childcare next year, right? Like her school doesn't have aftercare, the kids are getting out really early. What is everyone gonna do with this? And how do we have so many elementary schools with no solution or option for this? Um, this is not something I particularly cared about or worried about, right? But now I do. Now I'm like, wait a minute, how are we going to, like, what are we going to do with all of these kids? And same thing with my next door neighbors who, there's a school about an eight minute walk from my house. 
and their kids don't go to that school because they need them to get on the bus earlier than that school time would start so they can get to work. So the kids take a bus to a school across town because it just gives the parents a little more time. These are all like kind of complex issues that I wouldn't know or particularly know or care about if it wasn't for my friends knowing and caring about them, right? How much healthier would our neighborhood schools be if a handful of adults that don't have kids are vested interest in them, like invested in them and cared, right? And I, I wouldn't care as much if I didn't know people who were engaged and who, who had concerns that were related to those things. Um, another thing that I think can keep us away from people and keep us separate in this way is people that um, I disagree with. I also think a lot about people I disagree with, maybe politically, for example. Um, some of the ways that can keep separate from care and knowing folks like this is by not having actual relationship with them outside of maybe the internet. And the internet's a particularly bad place to know someone that you disagree with. I think it's really harming us, actually, I would go as far as to say, right? Because we've removed all the humanity from the relationship and now we have like loudly shared sound bites and points in which I'm interacting with that make me angry <laughs> and make me feel like this person's terrible. And this would be really unnatural behavior in an actual human conversation in person, right? Like there's no way that you'd walk up to someone and like shout your sound bite on something at them without like other connection. Um, it's just not how relationships work. And so this kind of keeps us even further separated from these people and these things. Um, we're not in relationship. We lose the actual relational connection. Of course, it's harder to care and connect and find ways to be together when we've kind of reduced ourselves in this way. If we want to care about someone who isn't just like us, we have to know them and love them. And within loving relationships, there's really beautiful and healing and generous things that can happen. Coming back to Ruth and Naomi. So these two women arrive back in Bethlehem um, and the town is stirred by their arrival. And now Ruth dives into working to provide for herself and for her mother-in-law um, in a land that's very new to her in a culture that's very different from her own. Um, and she does so with a whole lot of humility. So Ruth asks for Naomi's blessing to go and, and kind of glean and pick leftover grain in a field. Naomi gives her her blessing. And so she goes out into the field and she starts gleaning behind other harvesters. Um, so Ruth's, you know, just figuring out the way that you provide for yourself and your family in the, in the context that she's in. Um, she just so happens to find a field that belongs to a relative of Naomi's late husband um, and his name's Boaz. And so she's gleaning in this field. Boaz arrives and he asks about, you know, who this woman is. She asks, he asks the other harvesters, harvesters who Ruth is. And they um, kind of explain the situation given the gist. So Boaz goes to Ruth and says, hey, like don't glean from anywhere else. For your own safety, you should stay here, work with the women here in my field, and um, I'll make sure no one lays a hand on you. And he's just overwhelmingly kind to her. He offers her food and water. Um, he's been incredibly generous. And he tells her that he's heard all about what she's done for Naomi and he's appreciative. And Ruth very graciously accepts and receives his gifts of food and water and kindness um, and expresses, may I continue to find favor in your eyes. There's 
a lot of interesting power dynamics kind of in this relationship right from the start. A lot of them don't particularly translate um, super clearly for us today. But I do think it's worth um, pausing for a moment to think about um, there's, this, there's just something here about giving and receiving that gets really hard for us. Um, I think we as humans in, just in general have a pretty complicated relationship with giving and receiving. Um, and specifically, I, mean, I think it's safe to say for most of us in this room who tend to have most of our physical needs met and, and also some of the things we want on top of that, um, I think it can get extra complicated how our relationship works with giving and receiving. And so I know a lot of us would say it's obviously good to be generous, like pretty plainly, no one can disagree with that. It's good to be giving and share and be generous with those in need. And a lot of us, the same people who would say that, are pretty uncomfortable with receiving generosity. What is that about exactly? Because I think it might be worth examining a little bit because on one hand, this could mean that I have some sort of value judgment that I've placed on those who are in need of receiving that's different than those who are giving. I want to be really careful with that. If I think it is good to give and then I'm also uncomfortable receiving, could that mean that I think I'm better than people who need to receive? Does this mean that because you know, me and my spouse are, make enough money to meet our own needs, have I fooled myself into thinking that I'm not in need of receiving? Yikes, like that's not true. <laughs> it's not true in who we are as people. It's not who we are as, as children of God. And so the goodness in community comes in both giving and receiving, sometimes in ways that stretch us or make us a little uncomfortable. This can also get like extra weird anytime we're in a situation where we're specifically serving. Um, early in the pandemic, I was unemployed and kind of frequenting food, food pantry sort of things to, to help out with some of my time. And a lot of um, elementary schools were having some food, food pantries during this time. And so I was at a local school around here and I need to be careful to speak about this woman kindly. So I'm going to proceed slowly here. So there's this woman who was helping at the food pantry and um, there was kind of like a delay. The bo boxes weren't coming out fast enough. So there's cars sitting there with people waiting to get food and we were kind of waiting around. And she like leans down to this car and says to this man in the car, don't worry, we won't let you go hungry. We have food coming and like walks away. It was like she was talking to a child or something very, it was very strange. It was very awkward. And it was hard, it was hard to watch. And I don't know what was going on in her mind and I don't know what's going on for her. But there's, it was clear, it seemed clear to me at the time that in this relationship, she's the helper and those people were being helped. And in that dynamic, there is no actual room for real relationship. She could not imagine a situation in which these people in the food pantry line were her equals or her neighbors or her partners in anything. They were needy and hungry. She was something else. And it probably isn't conscious, it's probably not intentional. But that can keep her or us feeling better or separate than our neighbors.
that's kind of a problem because it's also just not true. Like all of us in our relationships and in our communities have room to give and to receive. And that is part of the wholeness of, of healthy community relationships. Another place it can be hard to receive is from someone I think is totally wrong. It's really gonna be hard for me to receive something from someone I just don't agree with at all. Um, then I have something to give you, the truth, and you couldn't possibly have anything to give with me. And so this has happened historically as well, I think a lot, um, and also, well, in plenty of times today with like some traditional maybe missionary situations in which, you know, I have the truth and you don't, and so I have something to give you. Um, how could you possibly have something of value for me? This can happen with people on opposite sides of political issue for me. Um, I think it can also happen with like other things in our lives that seem arbitrary but end up being kind of big deals like people whose parenting I hate like there's someone down the street and I think their parenting is garbage or like someone who takes their horoscope way seriously or thinks that going on like a beach vacation to the same crowded beach every summer for a week is like the best way to do vacation like these are silly examples of like stupid things that we like don't have to agree on but anytime I'm putting myself in a place where like they are so wrong and I am right, it's hard for us to be able to be truly receive. And so coming back away from dumb examples like that, like I, I just can't be possibly be totally right about everything and people I disagree with be totally wrong about everything, especially if I believe that the image of God is reflected in each person. If I believe that every person is a reflection of who God is, if I don't believe every person's reflection of who God is, how small would I make my world and how small would I make God? We are conduits of God's love and God's care and God's generosity. And so is everybody else. And this is so important in our understanding of relationships with people who are different from us. And so there can't be people who give and people who receive. And there can't only be value in people just like me. And we're more whole when we're sharing the reflections of God that are present in everyone and people who are, who are quite different from us too. So coming back to Ruth. Ruth's been working in Boaz's field and she's receiving his kindness. And Naomi was quite encouraged um, by this, especially that Ruth is working for a close relative and a guardian redeemer in her family. And so picking up in Ruth 3, verse 1 through 4. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you've worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until you're, he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. This is weird to me. This is very strange advice. It's just, it's very odd. And, I, and, and, you know, I don't mean odd in that, like, a cultural practice different from mine is, like, weird, but it's, it's not familiar to me. And I, 
I might think that it might be unfamiliar to Ruth too. And I sort of like reading this um, into her response, I'll, I'll do whatever you say, like this sort of, yes, I'm gonna, you know, follow this advice that you're giving to me. Um, that takes a lot of kind of humility <laughs> and both courage in this situation. So anyway, she goes and, and does what Naomi says. Boaz finishes eating, drinking, he's in good spirits. He goes and lies down. Um, and Ruth goes over and uncovers his feet and lies down there too. Um, then he wakes up in the middle of the night, his lady at his feet. And picking up in verse nine, he says, who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you're a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who's more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your garden redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So Ruth stays there till morning. Um, then she sneaks out so no one sees her and thinks anything weird is going on. And then she heads back to Naomi to report out what happened. I am not going to get into the weeds of all of the cultural specificities and customs that worked in this context. But what I do want to come back to again is how Ruth approached this whole situation with a whole lot of courage and also humility. So this was kind of a a bold thing she was asked to do. She really had to put herself out there in this situation um, to behave in a way that she's probably unfamiliar with. She kind of has to sneak around so no one knows what's good. Like, there's kind of a lot in this ask. It seems risky. She's also really humble in working within this plan that Naomi has given her um, that you know she may or may not have much experience with things like this before. And it's a tricky tension um, when we're engaging with people who are, who are different or come from a different background than we do, um, there's a tricky tension to hold um, that usually involves quite a bit of both courage and humility. Um, we, Robert and I, my husband Robert and I, um, have become, are trying to become better friends with our neighbors in our literal phys physical neighborhood. And so we have some next door neighbors that we really like. They're a young family about our age with a couple of kids and, um, that predominantly speak Spanish. And I speak Spanish um, conversationally, but it's rusty and things get weird sometimes. I like tried to order food the other day, or a couple of months ago and like said a euphemism for a body word, body part that I had not been trying to, to say and I can't go back to that restaurant now until my pride recovers a little bit. But like <laughs> Spanish is a thing I speak to some degree is what I would say. So anyway, engaging with our neighbors has a lot of, uh, it feels risky to me, especially right now when I feel very rusty in my Spanish because I do embarrassing things with it. And so being invited to a family birthday party with a bunch of their family members feels very risky <laughs> to me in this time. And so um, we were invited for this barbecue. We're kind of like looking out the window, seeing is it, okay, I guess there's enough people we can go over and, you know, whatever, making these choices. And so we show up and, and like talk about receiving like eight just incredible food and we're, we're getting it. We had a really nice time. We're like sitting around with um, a fire where people are grilling, um, getting to know some other neighbors that rent from their basement and just getting to know some more people. And as the day goes on, it occurs to me that 
I am like sitting in the young single men circle at the fire. Me and Robert are both there. And everyone else is just the young single men who are here. And I'm also drinking a beer at the time. And no other women are drinking a beer either. So now I'm like, all of a sudden I've just realized like I've missed something and I don't even totally know what it is. But there's like something strange about what I'm doing. Um, and I think what was, everyone was super kind about the whole thing. And I, and I think there's a temptation maybe to, to put even my own cultural spin on what happened of saying, well, like, who cares? I hang out with a lot of men in, in my life. It's not weird. And like, who cares who's having what kind of beverage? And it doesn't really matter, you know, whatever. Um, and so I think what I was trying to do instead was to like keep being brave and not say like, oh, no, I've messed up. I need to, I need to leave. Like, just keep, keep being brave in this situation, but also say like, I have more to learn here as I engage in this relationship. I don't totally even know what it is, but there's other things that I have to learn in these relationships. I think this can show up in some more um, serious and heavy seeming things too. Theology, politics, stuff like that. Um, some of you have likely heard me tell this story before, but one of the early times that I preached for the first time, there were folks in the room that I knew didn't think women should preach. And that made me feel very scared um, personally. That was, that was the thing that was challenging to my bravery and courage in the situation. Um, and immediately after I finished, um, a gentleman came up to me that I knew was one of those people who didn't think that women should be preaching and was very quick to very genuinely say what a nice job I had done and offer me kind words of encouragement. And so that was, that was I, I would guess, probably really pushing on his humility in this situation, right? Because he decided in this situation when we clearly disagree on something that's, that's serious, that's probably very serious to him, that he was going to choose to trust that him and I are both continuing to seek truth together, whether or not we agree on this particular thing. And so he chose to continue to engage with me in a positive way and stay in community with me in a positive way. And that profoundly affected me and challenged me in my humility because how, would, how could I have learned that from him if I had written him off as a person who just was so different from me in my views? How could we possibly learn from each other? And I would have, I would have missed that opportunity. I could have missed that opportunity to learn a thing that, again, still affects me to this day from him. Engaging with people that we disagree with involves a lot of steps that are, that are both brave and humble, and they're often quite uncomfortable too. And again, we see more of this wholeness of the body of Christ and of, of all these people who are bearing images of God and reflections of God as we do it. So back to Ruth. Boaz goes to sort some business out with the other guardian redeemer who has the right to buy Naomi's land. And um, as soon as that guy hears that there's not really much benefit in it for him um, and that Naomi and Ruth are kind of part of the arrangement, um, he decides not to redeem Naomi's land. And Boaz agrees to do so instead. Um, he agrees to marry Ruth, which keeps her late husband's name on his property and in this estate. So we're going to pick up in verse um, 413. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. 
The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Do you see what happens here right at the end, though? Ruth has a baby, and the women congratulate Naomi on her son. And, and in this section of the story, Ruth kind of vanishes from what's going on here altogether. In this book, we've named her after her, right? She kind of vanishes from the end of the story. At the end here, we're looking more at Naomi's story, right? Naomi's family's story, and a story of a piece of the genealogy of the line of David. And so what do we do with Ruth fading into the background after all this that she's sacrificed and all that she's done to love Naomi? I think this is a really real and complex tension that we hold um, because the story is about Ruth and her life and her sacrifice, very much is. And it's a part of a story that's so much bigger than Ruth, a story of what God's doing across time and generations um, and a story just much bigger than Ruth will know in her lifetime. Ruth's an important piece of the story, she is. She also isn't the main character of the story, after all. And I find this very freeing and also very difficult to grapple with in all of the ways, that, the implications of that. Um, it's a really difficult tension to hold that my life, in my life, the things that I do, do matter. These relationships that I invest in do matter. Um, my part of the story does, in fact, matter. And... I'm a part of a story that is so much bigger than me and been bigger than what I will understand in my lifetime. We're already connected to this bigger story and we're invited to engage with it in, in it with courage and humility. We're invited to receive and be generous within it and the things that God's already doing in and around us. And so as we wrap up here and kind of think, like, what do we do with this? What do we hope for in this? Um, I'm really hesitant to give any sort of blanket challenge or um, application points or anything like that because I don't know truly what's the next step for you and what, what of these relationships really need tending um, or might, might need extra care. Um, and I feel like I ought to give us something. So I'm going to try anyway, I guess. And so we have a, just a couple of things on my mind coming up with some of the ways that I'm planning to connect. And I'll invite you to, you to, to maybe join me in them as well. I invite you to spend some time reflecting on which of these connections that we're already in may need some tending and care. Um, I invite you to do that by coming and spending some time away at the family retreat next weekend with us and finding room to reflect and be um, with friends and also with yourself and with God and spending some time in, in, in that reflection and figuring out what next steps could look like. I also, I know for me, one of the challenges I'm really feeling is connecting to a bigger church, the, the bigger church in our city, in our world. It feels very difficult for me right now. And so 
um, I'm looking forward to this monthly prayer that we have coming up starting this Tuesday because it's an opportunity for me that feels really approachable to start engaging with some of these other local churches in praying together and remembering that we're a part of the church, the church of Annapolis, just a, just a slice of the pie. And so those are some of the things that I plan to be doing. And I don't know what, what you might um, plan to be doing. But I invite you to, to take some time and reflect on that. <clears throat>